next met with Dr. Sperano and to begin, considering his role as principal investigator of the intergroup Taylor X study evaluating oncotype in patients with node-negative tumors, I asked him about two index cases in our survey of patients with node-negative ER-positive HER2-negative disease and are finding that for patients with a one-centimeter tumor, if the patient was 60 years old, 82% of oncologists would utilize an oncotype, but that fraction decreased to 46% in a 75-year-old woman. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, I think, for the 60-year-old, you're using the oncotype more for treatment sparing because she's sort of at the borderline in terms of meeting established criteria for recommending adjuvant chemo. That's for the 60-year-old, for the 70 five-year-old, actually, this is a situation where chemotherapy would not normally be recommended. So you'd be using a test for treatment selection, not for sparing. So you'd be worried about undertreating someone. As you sort of look at these data, how do they compare to your own practice in terms of what you do? Would you use Oncotype in both of these situations? I would definitely use it in case one, and in case two, I would not. It just so happened that yesterday I saw a case that was identical to case two, where the oncotype was already ordered by the surgeon. And the score came back sort of, it actually came back low, came back 15. So it supported the clinical decision. But yeah, I would order the oncotype in case one and not in case two. I saw Norman Walmark give a talk at the Greenspan meeting this past week, and he showed two remarkable slides. One was that the oncotype is now being used in about 60% of all patients with ER-positive node-negative disease in the U.S., He didn't show a slide, actually. He just made that statement. And I'm not sure where he got that data from, but I thought that was an interesting comment. And then he did show a slide showing that since the use of the Oncotype became available, that there's been a, it looked like about a 20% decrease in the use of adjuvant chemotherapy in the U.S. for ER-positive node-negative disease. That's 60% number. Does that seem high or low to you? It's certainly much higher in terms of how I use it in my own practice. Of course, it depends on the type of practice you have. So if you practice, you know, as a university-based practice where you tend to get younger patients and referrals, that number is probably about right or could be higher. But if it's a more typical community-based practice where the median age of your patients is 65 to 70, it's probably high. What about the selection of chemotherapy? Does that have any impact? Does the oncotype, does recurrent score have any impact on what you actually decide to use for chemotherapy? Well, what I would say is that if CMF is your default regimen, or the regimen that you would normally recommend, I would not use CMF for patients who have an intermediate or mid-range recurrence score who you decide to treat with chemotherapy, because we actually do have data showing that CMF doesn't appear to be beneficial in that group. So if I were in a situation where I needed to treat a patient with a mid-range recurrence score, I would not use CMF. I would use an alternative regimen like AC or TC, or a more aggressive, you know, sequential regimen For example, if you've ordered the oncotype in, say, someone who has positive lymph nodes or micromets. Can you tell me a little bit about this patient you saw yesterday? A 75-year-old woman, not a tremendous amount of comorbidities, arthritis, but no other major comorbidities, and had a stage 1 ER-positive, PR-weekly-positive, HER2-negative cancer, grade 6 of 9, Again, this would have been a patient where I would have been comfortable recommending endocrine therapy alone. And the oncotype was ordered by the surgeon. So when I saw her, the patient had actually already completed her radiation and was seeing me to initiate endocrine therapy. 
So the decision had already been made by the patient and the referring surgeon about what the patient needed. But if I were seeing this patient, I would not necessarily have ordered the oncotype on her. Is there sort of an age at which you approach this like this? I mean, if she'd had five positive nodes, would you have thought about chemo? I absolutely would have thought about chemo on her. And that would be a situation where I think the oncotype would be helpful in terms of the use of sparing chemotherapy. So it sounds like you have a 60-year-old type situation where you would use the oncotype for a one-centimeter node-negative tumor. 75-year-old, you would not. Is there sort of an arbitrary, what age does it switch from A to B, sort of? (laughs) I would say that there's sort of a gray zone between the ages of 60 and 70. The other factor that goes into the decision about whether to order the oncotype includes the grade. So obviously, if we're dealing with an intermediate-grade tumor, there were more of an equipoise situation, and the oncotype can be really helpful in terms of pointing in one direction or another. If you're talking about a patient who has a poor-grade tumor, there still is about a 20% chance, 15 to 20% chance the oncotype score could be low. So ordering it, if you're being pushed in the direction of chemotherapy on the basis of clinical characteristics, getting a low oncotype back could prevent you from choosing chemotherapy. When you look at grade, do you look at what lab has called it that grade, or do you generally think it's going to be accurate? Basically, I look at the grade from the pathologists, you know, at our own institution, and if I have an outside patient referred from the outside, I look at where that patient had their pathology. I generally tend to get it reviewed, and I also pretty much review all of these cases at our tumor board. So I guess the take-home message is that you really need to be comfortable with the person who's reading out your grades. Getting back to the 75-year-old with a node-positive tumor, if you have a 75-year-old patient, how do you decide whether or not to use an archetype in terms of, for example, number of nodes? Well, the SWOG 8814 study did include patients with multiple positive nodes, one to three and greater than three. And in both groups of patients, there seemed to be a relationship between higher archetype DX recurrence score and benefit from chemotherapy. However, the absolute risk of recurrence was higher in patients who had four or more positive nodes versus those who had one to three positive nodes. So the nodal status is really prognostic, but not necessarily predictive of benefit from chemo, whereas the oncotype recurrence score is both prognostic and predictive. So it can add information, complementary information, to nodal status and can help you make a decision. The issue becomes the level of evidence supporting a decision to spare chemotherapy in someone who you would normally have recommended chemotherapy. Right now, we don't have a lot of... We're not basing these decisions on a tremendous amount of evidence, and it would be reassuring to see more. I know there's been discussion about having a trial looking at recurrent score and oncotype in patients with node-positive tumors. Is that going to move forward? Yes, it will be coordinated by the SWAG group, and we'll take patients with one to three positive nodes who have ER-positive HER2-negative disease. They will have an oncotype recurrence score performed. If greater than 25, they will be advised to receive chemotherapy off protocol or be offered other clinical trials. And if their recurrence score is less than 25, they will be randomized to receive chemoendocrine therapy or endocrine therapy alone. What's happening in terms of other genomic predictors used in the same clinical space? We've heard about mammoprint. 
There's another based on intrinsic subtype. Where are those assays and what kind of research is being done on them? The other assays include the MapQuant, which is available in Europe, which is a five-gene assay that essentially reflects the proliferative state of the tumor. And it's been developed specifically to deal with the patients who have intermediate-grade tumors to help provide some clarity about what the prognosis is in that group of patients. The PAM50 is a 50-gene set with 10 genes used to classify each of the four subtypes plus a normal gene signature, which would be indicative of the fact that an insufficient amount of tumor material was submitted. The four subtypes include the luminal A, luminal B, basal, and HER2-enriched. And these subtypes have been shown to correspond to the intrinsic subtypes that were identified in the initial microarray experiments pretty highly. The advantage of this technique is that it's much more stable. The definitions of what constitutes a luminal A versus a luminal B versus HER2-enrich versus basal are stable. The genes don't vary as they can if one is looking at microarray experiments and using the intrinsic subtype classification. And secondly, it can be done on formalin fixed paraffin and beta tissue using qPCR techniques. How about the MAMA print? The MAMA print is also commercially available. It's also FDA approved in the U.S. for patients with negative nodes, and I believe recently one to three positive nodes as well, or at least there's evidence supporting that, its use in that setting. It requires some planning in terms of collection of the specimen. The specimen would need to either be snap frozen or part of the sample needs to be placed in RNA later. So it, for the most part, cannot really be retrospectively ordered. One would need to prospectively order this test in a patient who is scheduled to have surgery. Are you utilizing this in your own practice? In my own practice at our own institution, we do not use the mammoprint. Just out of curiosity, if there weren't this sort of barrier in terms of the tissue, what about the clinical evidence? How do you feel about the evidence with mammoprint? Is it strong enough that you'd want to consider using it? It's already been shown that many of these gene signatures are roughly concordant in their ability to predict clinical outcomes, that is to provide prognostic information. There are differences in the validation sets that we use to validate some of these assays that provide greater clarity about the predictive value of some of the assays. So, for example, the Oncotype has been validated in two randomized trials where patients with ER-positive disease were randomized to receive either endocrine therapy alone or endocrine therapy plus chemotherapy. And in both of those trials, there were consistent results in that only patients who had a high Oncotype DX recurrence score seemed to benefit from chemotherapy. With regard to the print, there is certainly also data indicating that patients who have positive lymph nodes can have low or can have good risk print signatures and therefore not likely to benefit from chemotherapy. But the validation studies whether they be the original validation studies or the external validation studies, have not been conducted in patients who are randomized to receive endocrine therapy or endocrine therapy plus chemotherapy. So I don't think we have as much information about the predictive value of that assay 
as we do for the oncotype. On the other hand, since both assays are largely driven by their ability to measure the proliferative capacity of the cells, of the cancer cells, and that is what's driving the responsiveness to chemotherapy, most likely, they most likely are roughly concordant in their ability to predict benefit from chemotherapy, but we don't really know that for sure. One other question about this. We found that there are physicians, maybe 15 or 20 percent, that are utilizing the oncotype in a neoadjuvant situation. Do you do that, and what do you think about that concept? I am personally not doing that, but I think one can make a cogent argument to adopt that approach because clearly the pathologic complete response rates in ER-positive disease are substantially lower than, say, triple negative disease using chemotherapy alone or HER2-positive disease using chemotherapy plus trastuzumab. But for ER-positive disease, the PCR rates are in the range of about 10 to 20%, depending upon the type of chemotherapy regimen you use. So clearly, most tumors are refractory to the chemotherapy. One could use the oncotype to identify those patients who are much less likely to have a pathologic complete response. Those would be the patients who presumably have a low oncotype DX recurrence score, and then take an alternative approach for that patient, which could include proceeding directly to surgery. It could include treating with neoadjuvant endocrine therapy and evaluating the response to neoadjuvant endocrine therapy. So I think that's how this might be useful. I'm not sure it's quite ready for routine clinical practice, but it's certainly an approach that's being looked at now in prospective trials. Let's discuss management of metastatic ER-positive HER2-negative disease. Maybe you can present the patient you told me about who actually was both on an adjuvant and metastatic ECOG trial. So this is a 52-year-old woman who presented with a recurrence of triple negative breast cancer approximately five years after being treated for a stage two triple negative breast cancer with standard doxorubicin and cyclophosphamide followed by weekly paclitaxel on the E1199 trial. At the time that she recurred, she had no neuropathy no residual neuropathy from her prior taxane therapy. And she exhibited an excellent clinical response with the resolution of her bone pain and was maintained on paclitaxel and bevacizumab on the E2100 trial for about 33 months, at which time the paclitaxel needed to be discontinued due to neuropathy. She continued on bevacizumab alone and remained stable for another eight months, at which time she experienced progressive disease. At that time, she was treated with single-agent capecitabine and had another good clinical response that lasted approximately a year and then has actually received a number of subsequent treatments, both standard cytotoxic regimens and participated in a number of clinical trials. And her disease has subsequently responded again to other cytotoxic regimens, including an ixabepilone-based regimen, a regimen including venerelbine and gemcitabine. So I think this case illustrates that what many people have said, that triple negative disease is a heterogeneous disease, that there may be a subset of patients who may have late relapses, and there's a subset of patients who can respond well and have durable responses to standard therapy. I also think it points out the fact that the treatment effect for bevacizumab and triple negative disease 
as similar as it was in ER positive disease. So one sees similar benefits for triple negative disease when one adds BEV to weekly paclitaxel, but the duration of responses are generally shorter, which is known to be the case for triple negative disease. Patients tend to respond to treatment, but the responses tend to be brief in duration. Any speculations about what differentiates a patient who has this type of tumor with this very unusual history compared to the more typical patient? There have been reports about specific subsets of triple negative disease, gene signatures associated with different clinical behaviors. In our own work in the E2197 trial, for example, we found that, and this was a trial where patients were treated with adjuvant doxorubicin and cyclophosphamide or doxorubicin and docetaxel, that when we went back and looked at the gene expression in the primary tumor using a panel of about 270 genes, the only gene for whom increased expression was associated with increased risk of recurrence was GRAB7, which was a surprising finding because GRAB7 is on the same amplicon as HER2 and is often co-amplified with HER2. Yet these were HER2-negative tumors confirmed not only in the local laboratories but also in a central lab. So again, I think triple negative disease, as we know it, is a heterogeneous disease, but right now we really don't have good tools to identify those subsets within that subgroup who may do better or worse with certain therapies and who may have a more indolent course. Now, has this woman received a PARP inhibitor or is it something that you're thinking about in her? This particular patient, I have not yet had the opportunity to treat with a PARP inhibitor and she would actually be ineligible for the only trial that I currently have for a PARP inhibitor. Looking back at this woman's case, and in general, in terms of triple negative advanced disease, where are you right now thinking about using PARP inhibitors? Well, unfortunately, they're largely unavailable, except through clinical trials or through a compassionate use program for aniparib. We're anxiously awaiting the results of the confirmatory trial, We expect results sometime in 2011. If that trial, which essentially was nearly identical in design to the original trial presented by Joyce O'Shaughnessy, that will undoubtedly lead to approval of aniparib to be used in combination with carboplatin and gemcitabine. Until that time, for these patients, it's clear that this class of drugs have activity, but there are many unknowns. Do these drugs have comparable activity, and are they interchangeable? What are the biomarkers that predict benefit from these agents? Do they have similar effects irrespective of what chemotherapy agent or agents you partner them with, or do their benefits occur only when given with specific chemotherapy regimens? So there are many, many unknowns, and I think in the next couple of years we'll begin to see some answers to these important questions. If it turns out that the phase three trial with aniparib mirrors the results of the phase two and it was available, where would you see utilizing it in the course of patients with metastatic triple negative disease? Well, the original trial included patients with zero to two prior chemotherapy regimens. The trial wasn't sufficiently powered to identify the benefit in patients who are less extensively treated versus more extensively treated. And we really don't know information in that regard also regarding the confirmatory phase three trial. So I think we're going to need more information before we can figure out exactly how to use this drug, whether it would be better used as a component of first-line therapy 
or whether it might be best to reserve it after patients have failed several lines of therapy. Now, one of the things we asked about here was bracket testing in patients who are not necessarily younger or with strong family histories. What do you see as the indication to do bracket testing in patients with triple negative breast cancer? We get a lot of questions from oncologists about that. Certainly, if they meet the established NCCN guidelines for testing, it should be considered. I think in the past, we've only thought of testing as sort of a means to potentially counsel the patient and their family members. But now I think we may need to think of testing because it may have therapeutic implications for the patient who has metastatic breast cancer, whether that be triple negative or ER positive, because of the fact that the use of PARP inhibitors as single agents can be effective if patients are known to be BRCA mutation positive. So I think we're going to begin to, for the unfortunate patients who have recurrent disease, who may not have been tested, I believe we're going to have additional reasons to consider testing them so that we can identify those who may harbor mutations and therefore may be exquisitely sensitive to these agents, either used as a single agent or in combination with other agents. Are you yourself ordering bracket testing in this kind of a situation or with this type of thinking right now? Yes. I generally refer all of my patients to a genetic counselor at my institution, but I haven't run to a situation where I've necessarily ordered the test in someone who hasn't been tested in order to identify whether they, say, be a candidate for a PARP inhibitor. But I think that scenario will become more common in the near future. Let's talk a little bit about HER2-positive disease. In the survey, we had a number of scenarios related to adjuvant treatment of patients with small node-negative tumors. And you can see that for a 60-year-old woman, about half the docs would give chemotrastuzumab for a 0.3-centimeter tumor but almost all would treat if the tumor were 0.8 centimeters, regardless of the ER. Any comments? Well, it's clear that patients who have stage 1 HER2-positive breast cancer, whether it be ER-negative or ER-positive, have a higher risk of recurrence, particularly the ER-positive patients. And for the ER-positive patients, these are often patients who would have been treated with endocrine therapy alone. It's clear that if the tumor is HER2-positive, they have a much higher risk of recurrence, anywhere from two to threefold. That would put them in the range where they would be a candidate for recommending adjuvant chemotherapy. And of course, if you're in that situation and have a HER2-positive tumor, you're then not only recommending adjuvant chemotherapy, but also recommending adjuvant trastuzumab. The issues then become the trade-offs associated with therapy. And so if you have a patient who has an earlier stage disease and is older, then there's a greater potential for an adverse trade-off because of the higher risk of cardiac toxicity and the lower absolute benefit from treatment. I think that's what's driving the use of non-anthracycline-containing regimens, whether they be docetaxel and carboplatin or docetaxel and cyclophosphamide, or in some cases here, just paclitaxel and trastuzumab. I think the unanswered question would be, for those patients who have small ER-positive, HER2-positive tumors, do you need to administer the chemotherapy, or would you get similar benefits by simply adding trastuzumab to endocrine therapy? I don't think we have an answer to that question, and in most circumstances, patients are being treated with chemotherapy in addition to trastuzumab. I've had some situations in my own practice where I've had high-risk patients 
who have ER-positive disease who are elderly. One particular patient I'm thinking of was 75, had a number of comorbidities, and also had four positive nodes. And the patient had an ER-positive, HER2-positive breast cancer. So that's one circumstance where I've used trastuzumab in addition to endocrine therapy without chemotherapy. I have also one other very similar patient in my practice. But I really don't think we know for sure that using trastuzumab in that way would produce the same benefit as if you used it in combination with chemotherapy. What about the use of paclitaxel and trastuzumab? That was a choice that some people are making for older patients. Is that a regimen you utilize? And how would you compare the toxicity of that regimen to, say, TCH? Well, there are several ways to give that. One would be weekly paclitaxel with trastuzumab. In that case, the rate of grade 2 to 4 neuropathy would be about 25% or so. So that would be a potential downside. That rate of neuropathy is probably higher than with the other regimens described. On the other hand, other non-hematologic and hematologic toxicities would be more favorable. Another way to administer the single-agent paclitaxel would be to administer dose-dense paclitaxel for four cycles. So it's not an unreasonable approach, and it's actually an approach that I've used in my own practice, but again, I've tended to use this in older, high-risk women who've had comorbidities that, say, have prevented me from using an anthracycline where I was concerned about giving combination chemotherapy. Let's talk about management of metastatic HER2-positive disease. And one important question we asked related to first-line treatment for patients who'd received prior adjuvant chemotrastuzumab. And as we've seen before in other surveys, the choice of anti-HER therapy actually varies a lot based on the interval since completing the adjuvant trastuzumab. But in this survey, even with relapse six months after trastuzumab, about a quarter of the physicians restart trastuzumab and switch the chemo. How do you approach that decision? My inclination would be to use trastuzumab in most circumstances. And in any of these circumstances here, whether it be six months, 18 months, or three years, my inclination would be to use trastuzumab plus chemotherapy and to reserve lapatinib. The exception would be circumstances where a patient had a recurrence while receiving adjuvant trastuzumab. That's a patient who's clearly resistant to trastuzumab. Whereas a patient who relapses six months, 18 months, or three years later, I'm less confident that disease is truly resistant to trastuzumab, and I wouldn't want to essentially give up that option unless I was certain we were dealing with resistant disease. What's your thinking in preferring trastuzumab even in the patient who's had a relatively recent relapse? Well, my thinking is is that I'm not certain that relapse is due to resistance to the trastuzumab. Certainly, there's some degree of resistance, but the issue in that patient may have related more to, say, resistance to the chemotherapy, which was completed much earlier, or it could have been due to a greater disease, occult micrometastatic disease burden. On the other hand, if a patient has a recurrence while receiving adjuvant trastuzumab, I'd be pretty confident that we're dealing with disease that's resistant to trastuzumab and that we would need to replace that anti-HER2-directed therapy with another HER2-directed therapy, namely lapatinib, or to add a second anti-HER2-directed therapy to the trastuzumab backbone. And I guess you'd be referring to combining trastuzumab and lapatinib? Correct. In what situations are you using that combination? And do you ever use it with chemo? 
I've been using the trastuzumab-lipatinib combination predominantly in patients who've exhausted most other options. I think it would be reasonable to consider in a patient who, say, had a recurrence on trastuzumab who was minimally or modestly symptomatic with the notion that one might be able to delay the onset or the need for chemotherapy. I think that it's interesting that although the response and PFS benefits were somewhat modest, there seemed to be a relatively greater survival benefit. I think the take-home message there is consistent with other studies, and that is that even in the presence of progressive disease, there seems to be some value in continuing anti-HER2 therapy, whether it be using one modality targeting HER2 or two modalities targeting HER2. We were talking before about your patient who was in the E2100 study. Can you talk a little bit about where you see the use of bevacizumab right now in metastatic disease? And I don't know if you have any thoughts about the ODAC thing and, you know, also the choice of chemotherapy with it. What we see here in this survey is a very strong preference for taxanes. Can you just sort of overview the way you see this whole decision? Well, I think the decision is unfortunate because I think the weight of the evidence would be supportive of the fact that bevacizumab does have a clinically useful role in the management of metastatic breast cancer, but only when used, I think, in specific situations. Many have focused on the lack of a survival benefit when one looks at the aggregate data sets And this has focused on a lack of benefit for median survival. What's been lost in the whole discussion is the fact that there's a very consistent benefit that's statistically significant in survival at one year. In each of the individual studies and in the meta-analysis, there's about a 5% absolute improvement in survival at one year. And this is during a period of time when the patient is actually receiving the drug, the average period of time being about 9 to 12 months. So I think that tells me two things. Number one, that the drug is safe. I know there have been some concerns that adding bevacizumab may increase life-threatening or lethal toxicities associated with therapy, but survival at one year at a point in time that reflects when the patient's actually receiving the drug, I think is a measure of the drug's safety and reflects the safety of the drug. And secondly, I think it also reflects the efficacy of the drug. We may not be using the drug properly. There may be rebound angiogenesis when discontinued, and one may need to continue the drug beyond progression, as was the case with trastuzumab. For many years, we suspected that might be the case, and many patients continued trastuzumab beyond disease progression. We have not done that with bevacizumab, but unfortunately, the proper trial has not been designed to address that question. Let's go back to your cases. How about this other woman with triple negative disease? So this is a lady who is currently 65 who presented approximately five years earlier with a stage 3A triple negative carcinoma of the right breast with metastasis to multiple positive axillary lymph nodes. She was treated with mastectomy and tramflap reconstruction, was enrolled on the SO221 trial, and was randomized to receive weekly low-dose continuous cyclophosphamide with weekly doxorubicin, followed by every two-week paclitaxel. And then she also received chest wall radiation. She remained disease-free for a period of about five years when she developed a cough, 
and the workup demonstrated multiple pulmonary mets and liver metastasis. She underwent a biopsy of one of the liver lesions, which proved uh, a recurrence of triple negative breast cancer. She was treated with single-agent carboplatin for approximately three cycles, had a transient response, and then progressed. And at the time of progression, we had a trial available for her that was evaluating the PARP inhibitor, Viliparib, also known as ABT888, in combination with pegylated liposomal doxorubicin. She's received two cycles of that combination on a phase one trial and has tolerated the therapy very well, and we're about to evaluate her response to treatment. What's been your take as you look across the various PARP inhibitors that have been studied in terms of side effects, tolerability, and whether it combines with chemo well? Well, with regard to aniparib, or BSI-201, one of the striking findings from the O'Shaughnessy study was that the addition of aniparib did not seem to add any substantial toxicity associated with the carbogem regimen. The major issue was probably just the inconvenience of requiring the twice-weekly schedule of drug administration during the first two weeks. There are studies that are ongoing combining aniparib with other regimens, so we really have insufficient information about combination with other agents at this time. The other agent that's been studied extensively is the Abbott compound, ABT888 or Viliparib. That's an orally administered agent that is administered twice daily. It can be used alone or in combination with other agents, including alkylating agents, platinum, other drugs. Those trials are ongoing now. And there are studies, randomized trials, that are planned in triple negative disease, evaluating carboplatin with or without viliparib. And other trials, actually, in ER-positive disease, looking at low-dose cyclophosphamide with or without viliparib. So we should have some more information about what this drug adds to other therapies and about its single-agent activity. There's also elaparib, which has been shown to be effective when used as a single-agent in BRCA mutation carriers and which has been combined with other cytotoxic agents. Two final questions. One, we asked these physicians about the issue of biopsy of metastasis at the time of metastatic disease, and it looks like in general there's a orientation towards doing the biopsy a little bit less commonly if the patient's older. Can you talk about how you approach this question of whether to re-biopsy someone? My own bias would be to perform a biopsy whenever feasible for a variety of reasons. Number one, to confirm that you're dealing with a recurrence of breast cancer and that you're dealing with metastatic breast cancer. I've had scenarios where biopsies have come back showing sarcoid, showing lymphoma, showing other cancer types. So establishing a diagnosis is critical, the correct diagnosis. Secondly, it's known that the tumor can change phenotypes. Breast cancers are known to be heterogeneous, and there may be subclones of the tumor that are specifically recurring, and it's important to know the biology of that recurrent disease. However, having said that, there are some scenarios where it may not be possible to do a biopsy and where there may be an overwhelming amount of evidence suggesting that one is dealing with breast cancer, for example, on the basis of a very high tumor marker with extensive bone disease where there's no single bone lesion that will be easily accessible to a biopsy. And if this scenario particularly occurs in an older patient or someone with multiple comorbidities, 
I'd be less inclined to push the biopsy, but I do attempt to do that whenever possible. I've also had scenarios where I pursued attempting a biopsy and I was not able to confirm that we were dealing with metastatic disease. And one particular case was a 74-year-old woman. She had a triple negative breast cancer at the age of 74 with five positive lymph nodes. And I treated her fairly aggressively at this time because this was about a decade ago with doxorubicin cyclophosphamide followed by paclitaxel, dose-dense therapy. She then developed some vague abdominal symptoms and a cough and she had pulmonary nodules and mediastinal adenopathy. She actually even had a mediastinoscopy and a CT-guided biopsy. We were not able to confirm that she did, in fact, have metastatic disease. And so we just observed her. Her symptoms abated, and she did fine for about a year and a half, at which point she developed new lesions, one of which was amenable to biopsy, and we then did a biopsy and confirmed that she did have triple negative disease. So there are circumstances where one can observe. This is a patient who you know, essentially was observed for about a year and a half without therapy, who had triple negative disease. And so this is another example just indicating that even triple negative disease can have a heterogeneous clinical behavior. Final question. What about the choice of endocrine treatment versus chemotherapy and metastatic ER positive HER2 negative disease? For asymptomatic patients, our respondents often start with endocrine treatment. How do you approach that situation? Well, my default position would be to use endocrine therapy whenever possible in a patient who has ER-positive disease, including patients who have disease that has become resistant to prior endocrine therapies, either because they progress while getting an endocrine regimen for metastatic disease or have relapsed while receiving adjuvant endocrine therapy. The first critical point is whether chemotherapy is indicated, and that would depend largely on the symptomatology, the patient's symptomatology and the disease burden and disease-free interval. So greater symptoms, higher disease burden, a shorter disease-free interval would push in the direction of chemotherapy, especially if we're dealing with a younger patient. In terms of the type of endocrine therapy to use, if the decision was to use endocrine therapy alone, obviously if the patient has relapsed while not getting endocrine therapy and their postmenopausal aromatase inhibitors would be an appropriate choice, If they relapse while getting an aromatase inhibitor or progress on an aromatase inhibitor, if that aromatase inhibitor was a non-steroidal aromatase inhibitor, the options would be either switching to a steroidal aromatase inhibitor like exemestane or to fulvestrant. And those two options were shown to be roughly comparable in the EFFECT trial. On the other hand, there's a more recent trial, the CONFIRMED trial, in which a higher dose of fulvestrant was used then was used in the EFFECT trial, which showed better efficacy when using the higher fulvestrant dose, which led to approval of the higher dose by the FDA very recently. So I think fulvestrant would be a perfectly reasonable choice, especially if a patient, say, develops a recurrence while receiving a steroidal aromatase inhibitor like exemestane. And the more recent results of the confirmed trial would suggest that even in patients who've had prior non-steroidal aromatase inhibitor therapy like anastrozole or letrozole, that the high-dose fulvestrant may be a better choice. Is that what you're using yourself? Yes. This concludes our program. Special thanks to Dr. Sperano and Weiner, and thank you for listening. This is Dr. Neil Love for this special audio supplement to the Patterns of Care Breast Cancer Survey 2010.